Well, two weeks ago tonight, I preached part one of this message, Doing Justice to Social Justice. And if you were here or not, I want to briefly review just a portion of that message. And no doubt that you've already noticed if you've turned in your Bible to Exodus, to our portion of Scripture tonight, Exodus 22, verse 16, it's page uh, page 63 in the ESV in the, under the chair in front of you, you'll see that title, Laws About Social Justice. I think I said two weeks ago, it's helpful but not necessarily inspired to see that title. And I asserted two weeks ago that there is no true social justice apart from God. You see, true justice is found only in God's character, in his word, and in his works. That's why, really, the psalmist in Psalm 145 may say very triumphantly, if you read this in verse 17, Psalm 145 and verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. It's why we can read that. This true justice is found only in God's character, his word, his works. But most of all, the whole story of the Bible, when you drain it dry, when you distill it, it tells us of this breathtaking display of God's justice and his mercy as they both meet in this holy, beautiful, breathtaking intersection at the cross of his son. And the first of these, his justice, as we saw two weeks ago, is entirely inscrutable. And the second, that is his mercy, is unfathomable. You cannot get to the depths of it. You could never reach to the heights of it. But further in the first part of this message on February the 19th, two two weeks ago tonight, I gave this outline as a foundation for our consideration of justice, or if you will, social justice. Ironically, this comes in a week where just this week, perhaps the most noteworthy trial for many years in our own state, one Alex Murdaugh, after I think six weeks, of testimony, some 65 witnesses, a 12-person jury deliberated three hours and rendered a verdict of guilty, our own form of justice and our jurisprudence. But as we think of justice, or if you will, social justice, if you want to say that, last, in our first part of the message, we saw, number one, that God cares. And please do not find that trite. I'm not intending it that way. This is not someone saying, if you ever need anything, let me know. We're saying God profoundly cares as a personal three-person God, the triune God. He feels and cares deeply. And by that, I'm not saying that there's an identicality to the way that God cares in the way you care. But we, being made in his image, reflect that caring, or you might say, Right? Clearly, he supersedes that. And we must remember that 
His ways are higher than our ways. And we ought not to think that simply because we reflect him, that our caring is identical to his caring. But he cares. He cares for the creation and the creatures that he has made. Secondly, he cares for justice. God cares for justice and he will not wink at evil. He will not abide with injustice or deal with an uneven set of scales. Maybe you remember moments in your life when you should have spoken up. When you should have said, no, that's wrong. We need to deal with that. That's a wrong that needs to be made right. Well, God never sits on his hands passively in those moments. We heard from Isaiah 61 in verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. These are the Lord's own words about himself, his self-testimony. He cares for justice. Moreover, greater, he loves justice. What does God love? Justice. He hates wrongdoing, and his own character will not allow him to wink at it or pretend it does not exist. And that's not as some cosmic killjoy, but the one for whom the seraphim were saying back and forth to each other as Yahweh's robe filled up the temple, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, not only does God care, not only does God care for justice, but he cares for justice for his creation and his creatures as expressed in his word. This is, it's not enough that we survey simply the culture and say, what do you think God's justice looks like? This is not simply our own thoughts. Our conviction and our knowledge about God's care and sense and execution of justice is expressed in his word. That's where we must go. It must be shaped. The way we think about God's justice must be shaped by his word. And why is it? It's because it's his word that tells us how he cares for justice, both for his creation and his creatures. When you read in Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You know in that moment that those requirements of us are but reflections of him and his very heart. And when you read in Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, you may be confident that the God who made the whole creation is not indifferent. He doesn't shrug his shoulders. He cares and he anticipates the day as we read in Romans 8, 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As we said two weeks ago, we're now in that portion of law we call judicial or civil law, where the moral law of chapter 20 
and found repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5 is primary, permanent, and abiding. It's the civil law that is temporary. It's intended for Israel as a theocracy, a jurisprudence appropriate for a temporary theocracy. And then the ceremonial law, we might say, is anticipatory. So primary for the moral, temporary for the civil or judicial, and anticipatory for the ceremonial. Even in our own confession, 19.4, we read this. To Israel, he also gave various judicial laws which seized at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. So when we see something prescribed, maybe a pattern, what we're looking for is where there might have been a short term to that principle, that pattern, that commandment, that rule, we're looking for the enduring principle that underlies it. So tonight, let's look at these 25 verses again in the second half of Exodus 22 and the first nine verses of chapter 23. I'm going to expand, I'll build on and expand what we covered two weeks ago. Exodus 22 verses, beginning in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Yes, what you're reading is the idea of an interest-free loan. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. They're God's character underlying God's sense of justice. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any positive or it shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs." Now chapter 23, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit 
siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So now what I want to do is take our outline from last week and continue to build upon this and then deepen it, expand it, give some width and some breadth to it. There's three verses that apply in particular to our first area, and that is Israel as a nation was to be marked by purity and fidelity to sexuality. And those verses you see are verse 16 and 17 is one principle, and then verse 19. And they're all rooted in that seventh commandment. Kids, what is the seventh commandment? Do you remember? You shall not commit adultery. Very good. Thank you. In our sexuality, it's not something weird and strange. It is a gift from God to be received with gratitude. And it's to find its expression, expression exclusively in marriage with persons. One man, one woman. One woman, one man. The point in Genesis, when you go to those opening, to the opening chapter, and you read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is not simply Moses waxing poetic. He is saying there, there are two genders, there are two sexes, and it's those two that are to come together, one of one and one of the other, in marriage. We must not forbid marriage, but we also must not be fuzzy about the particulars of marriage. It's God's design and institution. You know how it is sometimes. If you're like me, sometimes you'll get something, you have instructions, but you're too lazy, too impatient to read the instructions. Does anyone relate to that? You just want to dig in, grab it, and get into it. And then you realize when you've wasted time and you're frustrated that you neglected the instructions of the designer. Marriage is God's design and institution. That's why John Murray in his book on biblical ethics, on principles of conduct, he's clear. Marriage is not to be thought of apart from sexuality, nor sexual, sexuality apart from the covenant of marriage. Boys and girls, if God has made you a boy, or if God has made you a girl, receive that as God's special gift to you. And learn from mom and dad, learn from the scriptures on what it means to be a boy, a girl, a man, or a woman, and then how those work with marriage. That's God's gift to you. And that's the thrust. This is the thrust 
of verse 16. So we said sex is not this inviolable mandate for marriage, but in ancient Israel, the reality of a sexual relationship pointed to the value of marriage. And I don't, just for a moment, while we're there, I want to highlight also that the parents, the parents of a young person here, in this case, the father's reference, is not excluded from the overall process, that there's blessing, there's responsibility and blessing implied here for the role of the parents, specifically the father, when there's the consideration of this young woman potentially marrying this young man. That's the principle there. It's not as though we marry completely apart from any input, any counsel of mom and dad. That's why it even uses the language in verse 17 of the father giving his daughter to this young man in marriage. And I want to move on now to verse 19. And I think you know I didn't want to mention much about verse 19, bestiality. And it's hard to believe. I understand that there may be a state in the lower 48 that has already legally recognized this as acceptable and has said you can't call it breaking the law. But it's Paul that wrote in Ephesians 5.12, it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And if you can imagine that this was so egregious that death was the prescribed penalty. And if you take, you survey the entirety of the Old Testament, there's a few things where death, the penalty of death is prescribed for a particular offense. This is one of them. But in effect and in summary, as we think of 16 and 17 and 19, we want to pin it this way. Marriage and the sexual intimacy of marriage as God's gift was limited to covenant partners between persons only of the opposite sex. And of course, Paul, he ratifies this in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 as he prescribes a limit for Christians who marry. And I think you know it. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Well, let's move on now to see Israel. First, we've seen here and in two of these rules, Israel as a nation that was to be marked by purity and fidelity in sexuality. But second is to see Israel as a nation was to be marked with purity and fidelity in Yahweh's worship. And I want to see this in verse 18, verse 20, and then verses 28 through 31. And I would say, you may break this down, there are five basic parts to this. Verse 18, it's very simple. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. So I implied last time that there was no need to say sorcerer because it meant the same thing. But let me just dig here for a moment, not to be too long here. But the word here in Hebrew may have been a feminine noun, which could have been the basis for translating this sorceress. The reality is, is that in Hebrew and in Greek, in the biblical languages, sometimes a noun might be feminine, but doesn't necessarily, it's not connoting, it's not denoting a feminine idea. For example, grace, grace, love. Uh, those are 
uh, feminine nouns, okay? But a man, of course, can love. A man can give grace, undeserved favor. So they're not, a noun, just because it's masculine or feminine by itself doesn't denote its, its ultimate meaning. And so in this case, I think you could say that it's acceptable simply to say you shall not permit a sorcerer to live, all right? One who does sorcery. As God had all power, no rival could brook his claim to sovereign power. And so to do so is an assault against the first commandment. And I think we must acknowledge uh, we must acknowledge here when you read the words, you shall have no other gods before me. We are in here, the first table of the law. And it speaks to something. And we must be careful, and I would say to moms and dads, please, let's be discerning about the type of magic maybe we deal with with children and to think that through. Is there, it might be one thing to do a card trick. It might be something to do sleight of hand. But I think we, we must be careful when we're, uh, we're even getting in that realm of speaking against powers that are something other than God himself who has all power ultimately and who's no one's, no, no one, nothing, not any other power has a claim to supersede his, all right? I think to do so is to, uh, to make an assault against the first commandment. Also, look at verse 20 now with me. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Literally devoted to it. Implicitly here, both the first in the second commandments, over there in verse in chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image for the purpose of bowing down or serving it. You shall not make it, bow down to it, or serve it. Implicitly, when you read about sacrificing to any god other than the Lord alone, implicitly those are referenced here. And I think it's important to note that sacrifice was not prohibited as an element of worship, but only God was the proper object or recipient of our sacrifice. Okay? And so, even though there's not the temple industry and the sacrificial industry that was known in Jerusalem today, yes, do we continue to offer sacrifices. We offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Even the giving of our tithes and offerings is like that. It's, there's to be a sacrificial dimension to it. In fact, David says, I will not give what costs me nothing. And then in verses 28 through 31, look, look at this at the end of chapter 22, or that you'll see here in these Four verses, there are three rules. Number one in verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And the people of God were not to revile God nor their rulers. These all accord with the first, the second, and third commandments of the law. It's impossible to reviling God 
if we are to have no other gods besides him, all right? It's impossible to be reviling God if clearly we're to be offering proper worship to him. If he is the one who says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, all right? He's the God who shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, he says, and keep my commandments. But also, it's in accord with the third commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But even the fifth commandment has a reference here to the honor and respect that we show to all persons. When you read this, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In our own shorter catechism, the larger catechism within the Trinity hymnal, it talks about the ideas that the point of the fifth commandment is we're to show this respect and honor appropriate to all persons, right? It's why even when you're going out to eat, you show a respect to the server who's living maybe just on the, on, that, that man or woman is living on the tip that you're leaving. And just because they're working for a six or eight or $15 tip, that doesn't mean you're not respectful, that you don't treat them like they're your hired servant, but you, you treat them as, as a fellow image bearer in the Lord. You respect, and particularly, he says, you shall not curse a ruler of your people, not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your, of your people. And that doesn't equal agreement. So when it speaks of don't curse a ruler of your people, it doesn't say don't disagree with your rulers. That's not what it says, all right? But we may use grace in speaking with restraint about those whom God has placed over us in positions of authority. Moms and dads, I have a question for you. Are your children learning from you to speak respectfully of those whom God has placed over them? Their teachers, a law enforcement officer that's pulled you over and taken issue with you that you were driving 50 in a 35-mile zone. Maybe a decision, a vote at church, a particular direction of our church. Are your children learning, are they learning to show honor and respect to those whom God has placed over them by the way you show honor and respect to those whom God has placed over you? That's an application question for us. Or are you cultivating a disconnect at that intersection that says, do as I say, but not as I do. You want to drive a stake in your child's heart, do that. Well, let's move on to verses 29 and 30 about tithes and offerings. Even this delay in offering these was the equivalent, in, in offering them in a timely way is the equivalent of failing to worship God rightly. And I think that we can make the case that both the first and eighth commandments are implicitly referenced here, but also connected to our worship that's referenced in the fourth commandment. And you think, how could that be? So here's my question. As you read these words there, the fullness, verse 29, 
Do not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. He says, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And I don't think we ought to be surprised that God says that because he did not withhold his firstborn son from us. But here's my application question. Are you taking from the fullness of your harvest and giving in a timely manner to God's work to support the gospel? When we had special offerings for those affected by the hurricane in southwest Florida or the famine in western Kenya, did you see that as an opportunity to give out of the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses to give with absolute hilarity, to give with absolute trust that as the psalmist said, he had been young and he had been old, but there's something that had never passed through in front of his eyes, and that was the righteous or his descendants begging bread. And so that you and I can give generously without fear of suffering want. Do you have a sense of giving out of the fullness of your harvest and out of the overflow of your presses? Or do you see giving as an obligation Something for your pastors to nag you about as though God is virtually slipping his hand and pickpocketing your wallet. How do you see it? Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Paul says it was the Lord Jesus that says it was more blessed to give than to receive. Well, in this section, I want us to look finally at verse 31. And we'll focus on this phrase, you shall be consecrated to me. And that's this idea of to be made holy. Yeah. You shall be made holy to me. You shall be consecrated. You shall be set apart. Why did God make you? Kids, why did God make you? Okay. Very good. Yes, we have multiple answers from multiple catechisms to that question. There's a second question. Why did God save you? To consecrate you, to make you holy, to reflect the very character of his son for his own glory. Your holiness matters. That's why Paul, that's why the writer says in Hebrews 12, 14, you saw me slip up and I credited Paul in Hebrews 12 saying, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, if your life doesn't reflect a growing measure of holiness, you wouldn't be happy in heaven anyways, right? Well, third, I want us to see that Israel is a nation was to be marked by faithful justice and compassionate care for the most weak and vulnerable. You can see that if you're taking notes, 21 through 24, 25 through 27, like two different sections, 23, 1 through 3, and 23, 6 through 9. The reality is the bigger portion of this whole section of Scripture is about this concern. They emphasized the sojourner. You see that in verse 21. And God is saying, don't wrong the sojourner. Don't suppress them. You were there too. And when they cry out, I'll hear them because I'm compassionate. 
I'm a compassionate God. I am compassionate, the end of verse 27. You were there too. You cried out, the end of Exodus 2, and I heard your cry. Your cries made it all the way to my ears, and I did something about it, and so are you to do for the sojourner. But he says also for the poor, for those who don't have enough, for those who don't have enough for their daily bread, for the widow, the one with no husband, the orphan, especially the fatherless, and we're to do no less. You remember Micah 6 and verse 8. What's the point of this? It's for those most weak and vulnerable. We're to do justice. We're to love kindness. Maybe sometimes there's not a right to wrong. There's a, a, a wrong to make right. There's not an injustice to make just. But simply there's this opportunity for kindness, for, for benevolence. For us to take out of our surplus and not just skim the surplus, but even give sacrificially, even to the point of denying ourselves. Some of you might know Alex DePrima just came out with a book called Spurgeon and the Poor How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. And I know that we have for us. His sermons from the days of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But there is a long legacy of many poor from the streets of London being won to faith by the compassionate care that that whole church under Charles Spurgeon's leadership, the, the, the care that they, they, they expressed practically to the poor. What was, what was Alex's point in writing this book? It's that if the gospel has taken root in our hearts and we've been transformed by it, then we will have a heart for justice, for, it will have a heart for justice, a heart for care, and a heart for concern for every weak, for every marginalized, and every marginalized person, not just in our body, but in our community. We won't plug our ears We won't just look the other way like those that would not help the man by the side of the road when finally the good Samaritan came through. We will be willing to care and be the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus. And I'm so grateful. I want to commend our deacons. And I know our elders can say this. Just our deacons now under Ray Parker's leadership as our chairman to be not just a sitting board, but a board that says, hey, who needs help? How are we going to help those in need within our body? Well, finally, I want us to see Israel as a nation was to be marked by profound love for enemies within a personal context. Now, kids, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought if there's someone you really, really, really love, do you think, is it possible for you to hate them? I want you to think about that question. If there's someone you really, really, really love, do you think you could hate them? And you're telling me, I see a shake of the head like this, no way. Let's flip the question around. If there's someone that all of a sudden you found, when you look at them and you look in your heart, 
your heart is full to the brim with hate for them. Now I ask the question, is it possible for someone you've discovered that you hate that you could possibly then love them? To consider that question both directions profoundly. And this is where we come to in chapter 23 and verses 4 and 5. It's our final category of rules from this section. He says, if you meet your enemy's ox, you can see it there, right? Or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. He's saying it's not enough to simply notice it. It's not enough to simply feel pity either for the enemy or for the ox. He says, you take action. You take action by bringing the donkey or ox back to the one that you felt hatred for. And he says, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under him, under its burden, then you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, you ask, can I help you? O enemy, I see your ox or donkey under distress, and it looks like too big of a job for one person. May I be your assistant? I want you to think about that. And I don't believe the reference here is to a foreigner, but to a fellow Israelite. It's like thinking about this verse and applying it to us, not thinking that this applies to some unknown Christian who lives in Paris, France, but it's to a brother or sister that, li- that sits typically on the right side, row 13, seat 3 and 4, okay? Like a brother or sister whom you know. Not applied to a foreigner, but to a fellow Israelite. Someone that an Israelite had a beef or gripe with. Never forget. The law is profoundly about love. Love for God, love for our neighbor, and even love for the neighbor for whom our affection is lacking. And we consider them our enemy. And it's so vital here to underscore this point. So kids, children of Grace Baptist Church, you can, you may, You must love your enemy. Can you believe that? And by love, I do not mean what you feel, but the good that you purpose to do for them. You can give your enemy a cup of cold water when they are hot and thirsty, or a cold lemonade on a July afternoon without charging them at your lemonade stand. You can take your enemy's bicycle and remove it from the road so it does not get run over and crumpled. And you can run and get help if your enemy has been hurt and needs medical care. You may do good for your enemy even while your heart is still struggling with how you feel about your enemy. But there's something you can't do. You can't love like this until God has given you a new heart, until God has changed you 
from his enemy and he has made you his friend. And then the feelings of love will come and hold hands with the actions of love together. But yet, you may do good for your enemy even when you're not feeling it. Remember, it was that lady saint Elizabeth Elliot who said, to love another person is to will that person's good. Let me close for us now. Praise God. Fellow lawbreakers, I have a message for us all. Christ came to fulfill the law. In his own words, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You and I could never keep it well enough to be justified before God, to be declared righteous before him. Sinful, broken, rebellious creatures like you and me, we just don't have it in us. We don't have that capacity. We cannot do it. We cannot be it. But praise him, he did. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ did. He met the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled them. It doesn't mean that we do not seek to obey the law as a rule of life out of a desire to please God, but it does mean this. It means that your obedience, my obedience to the law, is never to be a means by which we seek to merit salvation or the acceptance of God. I never come before God at the end of the day and say, Lord, I did really good today with the third, the sixth, and the eighth commandments. Can you please credit that to my account? As Brother Wesley did in preaching on 1 John, he gave us that illustration. The law was not intended to be a ladder for you to achieve and climb up to obtain acceptance with God. It's not a system of merit. If you're a Christian, he's already accepted you in Christ based on Christ's merit alone. When you sing that song in Christ alone, you may substitute in Christ, on Christ's merit alone. You were saved by works. You really were, just not your own, his. And it's why Paul says in Romans 10 that we have no need to seek a righteousness of our own, but we may submit to God's righteousness as he says for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in Romans 10 and verse 4 is Joel Beakey who's like a modern Puritan that took this book by John Cahoon called a treatise on the law and the gospel and he points out as we think about this relationship between law and the gospel that the law is important as a believer's rule of life, but it is to be that without doing injury to the freeness and the fullness of the gospel. And so 
Joel Beakey points out that John Cahoon draws out four practical implications as we think of the relationship between the law and the gospel. When we consider the demands of the gospel or the demands of the law and the promises of the gospel. And I want to close with this and leave this with you. You may talk about this as a family number one. The law shows us how to live. The law shows us how to live. Number the two, the law is a rule of life, combats Two false religions that will not save. On the one hand, antinomianism, a life with no law. On the other hand, legalism, a life trying to keep a law of my own doing and and, and thereby achieve acceptance before God. Thirdly, the law shows us how to love. The law shows us how to live. The law combats both antinomianism and legalism. Third, the law shows us how to love. And then finally, the law promotes true freedom. How do we do justice to social justice? There is, in a sense, there's no greater justice, there's no greater injustice, if you will, than the Son of God, innocent, holy, and undefiled, being placed upon a cross. That's an injustice. But it was there that the greatest demonstration of God's justice ever took place. For he accepted him on behalf of his sheep. My friends, that, that is really great news. I say come, come to him who can give you life. Him alone.